You know, right now, at this point, we are talking about apocalyptic scenarios in these uh, villages. When our local supermarket shelves, as you said, were half empty uh, during the fires, it really brought home the realities of food security to our, our consumers here. We are seeing communities we are using their traditional knowledges and practices, you know, to work out and forge different futures in this climate changing world. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Before we begin our seminar for this evening, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. I am currently on the unceded land of the Dharawal and the Yuan people, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Good evening. Good evening, my fellow panellists. Good evening, participants for this evening. I can't see you, but I know that you're there. My name is uh, Professor Danny Solomayer. I'm one of the researchers on the Grounded Imaginaries Project and the Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome everybody this evening. I'm going to introduce uh, the panellists as I ask them questions because we have a very tight evening. Um, and I'm before we get into those conversations, I'm just going to say a few words of introduction about the project that we're speaking uh, about tonight. So this is the culminating event of a project that we have been working on together for about three years. It's a joint project from the Sydney Environment Institute, the Social Entrepreneurial Association in Oroville and India and Bharat together, which is based in Delhi, but works uh, in the northern parts of India. And we have been funded very generously by the Vikram Rasmussen Foundation. And I'm very thrilled that we have representatives from all the organisations with us tonight. So the big idea behind this project called the Grounded Imaginaries Project is that the types of actions that people take collectively are always shaped by how the background assumptions that we have about what the world is, what the future can look like, what humans' place in the world is, what our relationships with each other and others are like. And we call those background assumptions, there's lots of different way of languaging it, but we call it the social imaginary. There are many dimensions of the social imaginary, but the dimension that we focus on in this project is what we think of as future climate imaginaries, our background assumptions about what a climate change future will look like, could look like, and what our role as differently placed human beings is with respect to that future. Um, following many others who have thought about this before us, we think that there are three dominant imaginaries for a climate change future. We call them business as usual, uh, a techno or a theofix, either technology is going to save us or God is going to save us. And the third one is apocalypse or doom. Uh, it's too late to do anything and everything is going to go to hell. Um, and they seem like three very different types of imaginaries. And of course, in many ways they are, 
But what they have in common is that none of them actually empower us to make a difference. If it's business as usual, then the trajectory is just going to keep going the way it is. If there's a techno or a theo fix, then we're passive here while someone else is going to develop the technology or God's going to come down and save us. And if uh, it's apocalypse or doom, then there's nothing to be done. So it seems to us that what we need is a different type of imaginary or perhaps more accurately different types of imaginaries. And those imaginaries, those alternative imaginaries would be ones where we envisage that ordinary human beings living in their communities and with the more than human world can collectively through our collaboration with each other and the other earth beings with whom we share our places, we can actually make a difference. It's a realistic imaginary that climate change will bring critical changes to our worlds that's already happening, but that in that space between what is the case and what could be the case, there's space for human beings through collaboration to influence the way that unfolds, the degree of flourishing and justice that ends up occurring in our worlds. And so we ask ourselves, where do those imaginaries come from? And they can come from a bunch of different places. They can come from literature. They can come from artistic interventions of all types. But in this project, the way that we think about it is that they come from the earth and they come from humans' relationships with the earth. They come from what communities around the world are already doing as they grapple with the realities of climate change on their food systems, their energy systems, their water, the, the creatures, the critters with whom they share their lives. And that as human beings are in action, they're creating these alternative imaginaries. And so over the last uh, two odd years together, we've been working in communities in South India, in North India and in Australia to find out and to discover with communities what are these grounded imaginaries that they're, that they're creating through their collective action and then to tell and amplify the stories of those imaginaries, hopefully to inspire others to be able to take that type of transformative action in their own lives. So we're in this wonderful position tonight that we're going to hear a number of those stories and I'm just going to go around the Zoom room asking each of you, unfortunately I know that each of you could be telling stories for hours but I'm just going to ask each of you one question and then hopefully we'll have some time for questions from the audience. So I'm going to turn to you first, Stuart, Stuart Whitelaw who is from one of the communities that we worked closely with in New South Wales, which for those of you in other parts of the world is in the southeast part of Australia, where people who make up a not-for-profit group, a community-based organisation called SAGE, um, stands for Sustainable Agriculture Gardening Eurobadella, which is the area. Um, and the vision of this volunteer organisation is to create, and I quote, a sustainable and resilient local food economy, food grown by local growers, provided to local people at a fair price. Um, so we're joined by Stuart, who was one of the co-founders of SAGE back in 2008. He's also an architect and an absolutely wonderful painter. So Stuart, I want to ask you uh, a bit of a tough question. Over the last few years, as we know, uh, you're a Badala, 
and the east coast of Australia more generally has been rocked by some pretty intense climate disaster events. The Black Summer fires that devastated us in 2019, 2020, and since then three years of driving floods, which of course for food systems makes things very difficult. Um, Given that you were building something from the ground up, those events must have put tremendous amounts of pressure on local growers. And yet Australia continues to export large portions, a large proportion of the food that we grow uh, overseas. Same with our energy, our energy systems. So why do you think it's so important? important to have these clever small-scale farming communities and projects to help address issues around food security. Thanks, Annie. This is this is an amazing opportunity that, that Sage has responded to and 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 we've learned a lot from this. We've we've learned that that's kind of made us reevaluate what we do and, and understand that perhaps some of the ideas that we've tried can be of use to others, which hopefully they can. In Australia, as you said, we're used to having it all surrounded by abundance and exporting 70%, I think it is, of our food. Yet the warnings that we heard 20 years ago about uh, the effect that climate change could be having on our agriculture, um, they're already coming to pass. Uh, climate modelling back then, I'm talking 03, was um, forecasting that by 2050, there was a 50% chance that broad-scale agriculture west of the divide would be economically unviable due to climate change, which was a real wake-up call. Uh, and the past decade, as you said, we've, we've had drought, floods, fires, and a pandemic thrown in for good measure, and broad-scale farming has taken a hit. The food distribution system temporarily had major problems. Uh, our food in Australia gets to people via trucks that take food into the city, uh, into the city markets and then back to the regions where it was grown. And one of our biggest food bowls, fairly close to here, the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area, um, it, it's virtually impossible to buy local food that hasn't made this journey to the city and then back again. And, and this seems crazy. Uh, when our local supermarket shelves, as you said, were half empty uh, during the fires, it really brought home the realities of food security to our, our consumers here. And at the Sage Farmers Market, we had growers and they had some food, but the demand quickly uh, you know, exceeded the supply. We could have done more if we had more farmers, but it takes years to build a resilient food system. You can't just turn it on overnight. And the fact that um, one of the, the problems is that decent professional education for small-scale agriculture is basically non-existent in Australia now. It's been abandoned. And that's one of the reasons that SAGE has just recently built um, our very own training facility called Stepping Stone Farm, where we're hoping to address, address that problem. So there's about 20 growers at the SAGE farmers market, and they can only produce a fairly small proportion of... Um, uh, uh, they can only feed a small proportion of our population. But if people realise the power that's in their wallets and continue to support the growers during the good times, then this sector will become more secure and more people will, you know, earn a decent living from growing on a small scale. To have a substantial impact on our local food security, we need probably 10 times the number of growers and farmers that we've got at the moment. 
And this is one way that our town, Maruya, can get access to food into the future, but it also, it also makes sense on a broader scale to have a kind of insurance policy for regional areas uh, in case fresh food production suffers a longer downturn due to climate change. The food will still go into the cities uh, and into the markets where the big money is, but only the leftovers will come out again to feed the regions. So our regional centres really want to take some control over their food supply system, and they want local small-scale farming to be recognised as an essential service like water, energy and roads. So to sum up, Sage believes that clever small-scale farming, as you call it, is, is one way that we can take back some control. But we need three things. We need, one, access to small parcels of land with good soil and water. Two, farming skills that are in danger of being lost to be passed on with professional hands-on training. And finally, three, we need open marketplaces, both physical ones and online ones, that will allow consumers to directly support farmers. Thanks, Danny. Thank you so much, Stuart. That's just illuminating. And, and uh, we put in chat the podcast episode, and I really do encourage people to listen to that. So I want to turn now to you, Mayank Shah. Uh, we're moving across the Indian Ocean, and um, Mayank is a researcher from the Himalayan region of Uttarakhand and a collaborator with one of our partners, India and Bharat, together. So, Mayank, we've heard from Stuart about how Australian communities are responding to food security issues uh, in a context exacerbated by the impacts of the climate changing world and climate disasters. What crises are Himalayan communities facing, especially in Uttarakhand, and how are these communities imagining a future amidst these rapid socio-ecological changes? Thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor Daniel, uh, to giving this opportunity to speak. You know, uh, you're talking about crisis. I per se right now don't see see that term crisis. Uh, I look I look at those things as challenges and you know the changes that the communities are facing. Uh, we can start with climate change. That's the most talked up issue. You know, likewise, like there's other parts of the uh, of the earth. In, in the Himalayan region, climate change is having aggravating effect. You know, we are seeing uh, increasing the mean temperature of the region. We are seeing, uh, you know, receding of glaciers. We are seeing, you know, the erratic precipitations. Uh, we are we are we are observing, you know, the snow snow line is decreasing. The, there's a reduction in snow line. All these changes will impact the water resources. Will impact the livelihoods of the people residing in these regions. You know, even if we target the IPCC's target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. You know, in the Himalayan region, that is, that aggravates to a much higher rate, and that means much higher, you know, rate of melting of glaciers. You know, historically, in in you know, in the Himalayan region, the communities have had a symbiotic relationship with nature, as it is with a lot of rural communities around the world. You know, people, uh, you know, are not just the user of the resources that they are getting from nature, but they also act as custodian of these resources. You know, they just just don't consume it, but they also conserve it. You know, when communities in the Himalayas are managing their forest, they are also managing their water resources. You know, we in Uttarakhand, we have had some of the oldest form of forest governance system, the decentralized forest governance system called the one panchayats or the forest commons, where the communities manage their own forest and, and to take responsibility of, you know, uh, taking resources from it, but also conserving it. But, you know, today what we see 
is apart from climate change, what we see is that there is a fundamental shift in the way we think about and interact with the natural world, which is largely driven by you know, human activities in the Anthropocene and also the global environmental changes like climate change. We are seeing large amount of you know, land degradation. We are seeing a significant amount of land use change. You know, we are seeing a large amount of deforestation to accommodate large infrastructure projects in the Himalayas. You know, that's all changing the agroecology of the region. You know, we are seeing the decrease in the forest commons. We are seeing the decline the rights and dilution of the rights of people in the forest commons who are managing these forest resources. You know, all these socio-ecological changes are having great impact. You know, the, the whole socio-ecological uh, changes are so complex to understand. There are certain uh, changes and certain uh, challenges that we see which are very direct, like landslides, you know, soil erosions, habitat loss, you know, changes in ecology, which are quite visible. But then there are other socio-ecological uh, complex issues which need more, more than just the nuanced understanding of the region, whether it is migration, whether it is change in the farming practices, whether how the social dynamics of the region is working, how the politics of control and, and elite control of resources work. You know, all these change on the way how people think about the Himalayan space. Then there is the political ecology of the region, which has a grave impact on how the traditional systems work. You know, for long, uh, for long, the state has looked up to the Himalayan space as, uh, you know, with a competing priority of economic development and environmental sustainability. Added to it is the, uh, you know, the geopolitics and, and the borderland uh, issues. You know, the Himalayan region has been long looked at as a as, as, as place of, of high natural resource, which has immense hydropower potential, which has in, in, in significant amount of forest cover, you know. And all these things are critical for the state as, as, as you know, options of economic growth and per se clean development. You know, and this, this has been going on since the colonial times where Himalayan spaces have been looked upon as extraction zones. You know, instead of, of, instead of you know, as a model of consumption, we've moved to a model of extraction in the Himalayas. You know, with the mindless and rampant construction that is happening, promotion of unsustainable and uncontrollable tourism, all these things change how the society, how humanity, and how ecology works in, in the region. You know, we are not just looking at these resources as means of living, but we are looking at these resources as profit-making industry. So, but there is the silver lining, silver lining with the alternative imaginaries and alternative work that the communities are, you know, working on ground. We are seeing communities we are using their traditional knowledges and practices, you know to work out and forge different futures in this climate changing world and you know having alt alternatives being and being reading alternatives there you know where communities are prioritizing environmental conservations along with sustainable development like you know the communities of Sarmoli, which we have documented in this in, in this project itself where they are working on managing their forest resource they are working on managing their water resource and rejuvenation of the water resource and also creating economic opportunities through nature centric livelihoods you know, communities in the village of Kevar in Chamoli district, which who are working on sustainable agriculture practices, going back to that movement of creating climate resilient uh, farm, natural farming, which just not, you know, increases the economic benefit and the productivity, but also works for the soil benefit and the benefit of other species, you know, that are, you know, dependent on these things. 
we are seeing how the regenerative farming movements are working. We are seeing how the traditional systems of water governance or whether it is forest management, communities are working towards this because these communities are native to these places and they best know how to manage these, these things. You know, this, these indigenous knowledges and these indigenous communities can, can and are working on a way for a sustainable future among all these crises and among all the changes that we are witnessing right now. The research that Mayank and his colleagues did, particularly around traditional water practices and forest practices and women's leadership, is documented in the podcast. So that's just a little taste. Um, we're staying in the Himalaya region, though, and I'd like to turn now to really extraordinary researcher who's been working with us, um, glacier and water conservationist Lobsang Wang Tuck. Um, Lobsang is the co-founder of the Navi Karana Trust, an organisation which has been working really extraordinarily and tirelessly to provide water to the people of Zanskar in Ladakh through innovative uh, water solutions, sustainable water solutions. So I'm really interested if you could talk to us a little bit about the gravity of water scarcity in Ladakh, implications not just for that region but for South Asia and how are you addressing this crisis? Um, you know, to talk a little bit about that at the long-term threats that you see as well. Um, so I think uh, there are fundamental problems in how we even address uh, climate change in the Himalayas because we don't understand the uniqueness of this ecosystem. So to give you a little fact, um, all these uh, villages, settlements in this high altitude at an average 3,500 meters, like the region I come from, we entirely are dependent on glaciers. And glaciers, uh, I would like to distinguish between the traditional glacier and the large glaciers. So today we have research and data coming out. People talking about recession of glaciers, they seem to only talk about the very large glaciers, which are feeding the big rivers. But today, right now, what uh, the, the threat is that many of these villages, which have been dependent on small snow lines, snow fields or small glaciers, these are, uh, you know, uh, they are running out of their sources. And because of this unique relation the people, villages share with these glaciers, uh, what has happened is, uh, um, you know, the villages have not been able to suffice their agriculture needs in the initial period of uh, agriculture. So at this time, at this right moment, I come from Zanskar, there are around 54 villages to hamlets. And then 23 of them, were facing moderate to severe scarcity last year because uh, the precipitation for the past two decades has been very less and these glaciers that they have been dependent upon has been only receding but there has not been any multiplication on these glaciers so we have uh, one after the other you know right now at this point we are talking about apocalyptic scenarios in these uh, villages and then it is made uh, you know, urban places you see in the high altitude Himalayas, because we don't appreciate and understand this resource, we seem to really go on a rampant development and uh, unplanned cities with no sewage treatment and, you know, ex extraction of groundwater, which is, uh, you know, depleting the groundwater further and contamin contaminating it also. So people's relationship with water for the past one decade in the cities have depended on, uh, you know, groundwater and not the surface water that is coming from the glaciers. So earlier you would uh, have this uh, sacred relationship with water and 
land. So you had this responsibility to also, you know, uh, perform rituals and look at certain dates, when to do constructions or how to manage that water. And you have village chiefs which are responsible to distribute and resolve disputes. So because these villages are only dependent on these glaciers, there's also societal and lifestyle um, uh, consequences also because, uh, you know, the availability of land was not the... Uh, you know, big problem for population to grow in these regions. It was the limited water that was coming down and it was the management of the water. So you had polyandrous relationship uh, within the villages uh, because one family cannot break uh, to further three, four um, components that would have much more pressure on water and not just land. So um, the bigger threat is this, that uh, these are happening in the Himalayas, but we don't understand how Himalayas are so important to the, you know, to, to, to the world. And how is it providing water for the downstream communities in the plains and how uh, food security is related to the rivers, the larger rivers, freshwater rivers, which are directly used by farmers downstream. And how Himalayas plays an important role, how ecosystem, healthy high altitude ecosystem means healthy monsoon in the plains. These are needs to be established. And uh, without understanding this fundamental micro picture of glaciers to understanding the larger impact of glaciers and in the coming years, how water disputes um, between countries is actually going to have a larger impact on the economy of the whole world. These are something we need to understand and making glaciers as the core argument and building narrative around it. It has only the long-term impact, and uh, I would would not like to take too much time. I hope I have been able to compile it. Thank you so much. It's just it's such a pleasure to hear you speak. Your work is so extraordinary. We've put mm. in chat how to contact Love Song if you're interested in his work. And again, we have a podcast episode where we go into some detail in that. And then, um, so thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to move to the south of India now and talk about uh, another area of dire impact of climate change. And to help us with that, we are joined by another absolutely brilliant research fellow from the project. Such a pleasure to have you here, Rohit Nair. So Rohit uh, is a research fellow from uh, the Oroville project team that I mentioned before and a resident of Chennai. For those people who don't know, Chennai in Tamil, Tamil Nadu has been identified by the IPCC as one of the rapidly deteriorating climate change hotspots in the world. Um, Rohit, even though such a, a young man, is already leading his own organisation, uh, a not-for-profit not environmental education initiative called Project Living Cities, and has been working closely with the Perambakkam community. So Rohit, can you share with us a bit about what's going on in Perambakkam? A very interesting uh, example where social justice or social injustice and climate justice, climate injustice are so entangled um, and how communities are trying to redistribute decision-making as a way of addressing these dual problems. Thank you. Thanks for having me on this panel. 
So here in Chennai, peripheral resettlement, which is um, sort of transferring people from core areas of the city to outskirts of the city in sort of multi-storied resettlement complexes, has sort of re-emerged as the favored policy option for housing the urban poor. And this is a direct consequence, I think, of extreme climatic events that the city has seen over the last couple of decades. The understanding is that the poor and the marginalized groups in the city who have historically occupied high-risk zones, uh, partly because uh, there is no other place in the city, places like river and canal banks, lake beds, sometimes beaches, are putting the entire city at risk by staying there. And therefore, their removal is sort of deemed imperative for resilience building of the city. And in the name of sort of future city making, there is a systematic effort to insulate certain priority areas, core areas within the city by cleansing them of certain groups of people. So I think this is the dominant imaginary that we're up against in this story. Uh, so here the next step is to sort of understand what kind of climate risks the resettled groups are facing. And in the Perimbakam resettlement colony, where I did my research, flooding, water scarcity and extreme heat are major climatic issues, partly because the buildings are designed so poorly. But they're often obscured by sort of day-to-day -day difficulties like lack of access to services like healthcare and education and poor infrastructure, transport, livelihood opportunities. So at some point, it's, it's, it's evident that the impact of climatic events are not felt in sort of isolation or at least not just during the periods when there is a flood, but they're felt every day and they're piled on top of pre-existing vulnerabilities, making this site, um, not just Perimbakam, but there are multiple resettlement sites in the city. They're all concentration of risk, concentrating not just climatic risk, but socio-ecological risks in general. And what is clear also is that we need new modes of risk assessment, which will capture the compounded crisis that these communities are experiencing and will continue it to experience if we don't change how we're looking at urban design. So what does a grounded imaginary look like? And I think that's the most um, exciting part of this project. There are several sort of community initiatives doing phenomenal work in Perimbakam. I had the opportunity to work with one group called the Information and Resource Center for Deprived Urban Communities. Um, and their community fellows who are doing a whole gamut of activities to help the residents who are living in Perimbakam. So the way they understand their work is uh, as efforts to make the community stronger, aka build resilience from the ground up. And this could mean learning centers for children, securing scholarships for them, working with the state to sort of fill critical gap, because ironically, the state doesn't know what it did when it moved them there. Um, using surveys and enumeration, sort of building faster feedback loops between residents and authority, managing a community garden, which they recently started, and also organizing outreach campaigns on social issues. So a whole range of activities. Some of them are highly successful, while others are still finding their footing. But they're nevertheless very important because they have come from the community. The aspiration to do these things have come from the community and they address the gaps that the community itself has identified in their paths towards securing resilience that they see not just as sort of environmental resilience, social resilience, but like a, a, a holistic understanding of resilience. Um, and this, I think, stands as a strong counter to the dominant imaginary of eviction or just like moving people out of the city and forgetting about them. So I think what is necessary at this stage, and GI has opened the avenue for it through the power of storytelling, through the power of imaginary, is to build a vocabulary for talking about the climate crisis that, it, that is attentive and sensible to local realities. In other words, I would say that 
the imaginary that we have identified needs a lot of support. And I'm happy to say that the youth climate groups that I'm part of are already starting to explore different methods of going about it. But we really do need a vocabulary to start talking about climate change, social justice in the same breath. Thank you so much, Rohit. And I think that we've put in chat, I hope, both the podcast episode, but also Rohit made the most amazing video, which I would have urged everybody to see. Uh, I believe that Amitav Ghosh retweeted it, saying that it was a must-see by a brilliant young Indian climate activist. So please don't miss out on it. Um, So we're staying in Tamil Nadu, but moving to a very different context, the experimental township of Oroville, an international community that was founded in the 1960s. And to talk to us about that is a wonderful colleague. I'm so happy to have you here, Deepthi Indukuri. Um, um, please forgive my pronunciation. Um, Deepti is a multidisciplinary applied researcher and practitioner living in Oroville. So could you, Deepti, tell us about how your community interacts with the more than human world as part of this climate imaginary, grounded imaginary that is being created there? Thank you, Danny, and uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in and joining us today. So, uh, Oroville, to give a little history, like Danny mentioned, it started in the 60s during time of war and when things were really, really challenging. And it's uh, a community that has been alive uh, since 55 years today, right? And uh, it started with a vision, and the vision was uh, to create a new world, a new humanity and a society to express and embody a new consciousness. Now, all of, all of this might sound like, whoa, 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 what? But uh, the idea is really to rediscover oneself through living consciously and uh, find a way to, you know, experiment with however one lives. Through the Grounded, I've been living here for about two and a half years. And uh, through this project, I have been... Uh, deeply immersed with those who have created the forest. This was a barren land when they came in and uh, saw closely their relationship with the more than human world. And it gives me goosebumps every time I think about it because uh, it is so deep. There is so much care in, uh, in the way one interacts with the soil, with the beings. Like I know uh, of foresters who communicate through bird calls, for example. I've seen uh, someone who was having, uh, I mean, had a fall and was struggling to walk and a broken butterfly just landed on her, right? So these are like really small uh, moments, but there's, there's so much of these interactions and it's so ingrained within how one lives. So it's very special uh, and it's also because even more special because this is completely almost created by these humans with the help of... Uh, the more than human world. Like in one of the settlements, uh, like you hear in the podcast, the Pika and Bernard speak about how termites led them, uh, gave them the solution to soil building on a land which was extremely eroded. And from there, they went on to be seed conser- uh, uh, to start a seed conservation initiative, right? So uh, stuff that humans alone cannot find solutions for, by being so close to the land, people have observed and found solutions through the modern human world, which is extremely fascinating and makes me like 
really excited about the fact that there are really conscious reminders within us and all around us about the fact that we are only one species and there are so many species and there are ways to interact with them in another forest the picture of the mongoose that you can see on the screen uh the people who were stewarding this land uh, followed i mean observed how the mongooses take their path and then also realized that's the best path to have in this forest because they know intuitively something that we probably do not know and it's one of the most beautiful uh, beautifully designed forest park in oroville you'll hear of that story also in the podcast and uh, bringing back to the founder who uh, whose vision oroville is today mira alfasa the mother is how the community calls her and uh, she intuitively again with her experience of the modern human world gave names to trees to flowers and there's a language within the community and it's really beautiful like there is a work tree which is a pioneer tree there are trees like there are flowers like transformation no quarrels miracle so there's language within the community as well and that also builds how we talk to each other and it's like friends it's family and it's 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 beautiful and i'm very very grateful that as difficult as some days might be that interaction is alive and uh, these solutions are being discovered through these interactions with the modern human world so and i'm i'd also like to call out gratitude to everyone who works and interacts with the modern human world it's very very special Thank you so much, Deep T. Uh, things have been very difficult in Oroville uh, for the last couple of years and particularly in the last few weeks. And it's just such a testament to the spirit of collective human, more than human commitment that you that you can continue to be present to and to bring to life that connection. So thank you. Really very honoured to have you here. Um, so our final speaker in this round is uh, is my wonderful colleague and partner in crime, Heist Spore. So Heist has been one of the project leads uh, from the Social Entrepreneurship Association Oroville team. Um, Heist is originally from Amsterdam but has been in India, I think, for about 20 years uh, 13 of which in Oroville, and he co-stewards a nine-acre uh, reforestation site. And often when we're on calls, uh, we have the pleasure of hearing the birds and the forest and the chickens and everyone else who Heist lives with. So Heist, we've heard stories of tremendous challenges and the ways in which people are trying to meet them. Um, and I'm going to bring a... a really bring a lot of what people have said together in this question to you that there's not one crisis it's not just the climate crisis it's the social crisis it's the broader ecological crisis it's the crisis of the rise of authoritarianism that we're seeing in so many countries across the world sometimes we now calling this the poly crisis and these multiple crises don't just go along parallel tracks they reinforce each other so what does this mean for civil society? You've been so dedicated to civil society action and for the position of social sector organisations in a country like India. Thanks, Danny. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, 
I just when Deepti was talking about collaboration with the modern human, I was thinking about why is it so difficult to collaborate with the human? Um, so I think it has to do a lot actually with imaginaries. Um, now, if we say that this poly crisis asks for a poly response, um, the way that that looks to me is that you will have a lot of cross sector, cross movement collaboration to figure out what's happening and um, how to respond. Um, and I think maybe in building our movements, we've been focusing a lot on our little bubble, our professional bubble and reinforcing that. So we, you know, every different movement has their own uh, definition of success and you grow through the ranks and you, um, you strongly identify with that movement. You know, it gives you a sense of purpose to identify with something larger than yourself. But now actually what we're seeing is that my cause is entangled with your cause, which is entangled with somebody else's cause. So the thing that I was identifying with, you know, whether I'm a healthcare activist or education or a right to food or democracy or whatever, it's, it's not, it's not its own thing anymore. Um, but it's really complicated to identify directly with everything at the same time. Um, so I think there's a, there's a new imaginary that is required for the social sector. Um, and I have a hunch that we can actually learn from our interaction with the modern human to learn about this cross-sector collaboration. Like if you look at this wood wide web, for example, where you've got different species communicating and um, you know, growing together. Um, but there's something, I think, in in our idea of who we are that we think that, you know, that's not us. Like maybe trees can collaborate, but humans are not like that. Um, so I think it has to do with re, yeah, reimagining who we are as a species. What I'd like to hold on to is that this idea that life creates conditions for life and we are part of life. So actually, that's something that comes natural to us. Um, I was thinking about, like, what's a, what's a good slogan so my parents grew up in the 60s it was the generation of peace and love so i'm also a parent and i would like to maybe think of our generation as the generation of peace and life you know that we can we can tune into that what does that mean to be a part of life that creates conditions that are conducive for life and why the the peace comes in is uh, you just referred to the orville uh, crisis we are in we are facing like serious violence in a in a community that uh, talks a lot about peace and it made me realize that you know there, you can you can collaborate a lot until somebody starts using violence then basically i don't know what to do next um so hence yeah peace and life as a as a motto for cross disciplinary cross movement collaboration i think thank you thank you so much thank you everybody and i i really I feel very badly giving you such a short time to answer such complex questions, ones that I know that you don't only think about, but that you live. There are a few um, a few people who asked a question when they registered, really wanting to know, you know, you've talked about what you're doing in your communities, but if someone was to come to you and say, you know, this just all feels so big, what can I do? What can we do? Just what's a piece of advice that you would give people? Uh, anyone can can jump in. Uh, I think the one piece of uh, I was sharing this with a group of students last week and the power of stories. All of us relate to stories so much and we know of things that are going on around us 
that could affect trickling down to many more. So uh, voice your story is what I'd say. And that's something that's doable. Whatever form you choose to do, it could be just talking to someone, it could be art, it could be whatever calls you, but it's about spreading that essence of, yeah. I would uh, like to request people to, you know, focus more on glaciers and the importance of the Himalayas um, because um, it is the asset of the world and it's not just the region that um, where these glaciers originate. And once we understand glaciers, that's when we will start addressing the problem right. So we may think that glaciers are so uh, disconnected, but, you know, we are all connected to the glaciers, no matter where you live. A small thing, I think, is uh, like interacting with a plant. So even if you do this exercise of like breathing with a plant, like you, you breathe out what the plant breathes in and vice versa, it helps to connect to this web of life and realize that, you know, it's, it's not difficult to participate in this um, modern human web. Look, I, I tend to come to this, you, you may have gathered from a fairly practical perspective. So I think, I think if someone came to me and asked what they could do about it, um, it would be um, to, to genuinely try something that can make a difference and, uh, and to demonstrate it. Because I think one of the problems with, with communities confronting climate change is sometimes there's an awful lot of talk about it. And, and I think sometimes the important things can get lost uh, in, the, in the talk. And it's, it's sometimes important to say, look, we can actually do something and demonstrate that we can make a difference. Uh, and, and that would be my advice. So I think, you know, uh, what we see around, uh, around a lot of parts of the world in the Himalayas and other parts, you know, communities are forging different futures. The issue is that, you know, they are not able to scale that up because the decisions that are taken for their well-being or for their region has been taken by some people else. You know, there is a need today to fundamentally shift the way how current models of economic growth and consumptions are, you know, looked at, where we prioritize short-term gains over long-term sustainability, where we have to recognize the interdependence of social, economic, and ecological systems, you know, and, you know, we have to imagine the indigenous knowledge and we have to acknowledge the indigenous knowledge and to, you know, pave way for participatory form of democracy, not just on papers, but on, on ground whether it is when it comes to climate change or whether it comes to other sociological changes. That's great. Now, before I turn to Rohit, I'm actually going to, because I was going to ask uh, my, you and Rohit to, uh, to answer another question. So I'm going to stay with you because you've already started uh, to answer in a way, Maya. So we've got a question about the challenge that, you know, this Marco has said, seems to me that the biggest uh, reimagining challenge is the challenge of the dominant ideology of capitalism and ownership, which has led to unfettered consumerism in developed countries. Um, so if maybe you want to just continue what you're saying to talk about the, you know, how do we reimagine uh, forms of life po- post-capitalist, post-consumerist? We have to we have to move away from these current you know economic growth models where you know uh, growth is just me- me- measured in terms of GDP numbers. 
you know what this does is you know when you wipe off a, a, a large amount of forest to accommodate one big infrastructure project it adds on to the gdp number but that wiping of a forest also has a spiritual loss also has a cultural loss to for the communities which does not get accounted for today we need to move towards models of degrowth rather than high economic growth where we have to you know take into account all beings that are interconnected together their lives and the lives of human we just can't move into you know uh, we just can't move into models of extraction which we have you know from a model of usage we have moved to a models of extractions so we have to have some uh, efforts and conscious efforts at the policy making at the ground and at the general public you know and general citizens and make conscious mm-hmm. effort on you know uh, sort of control con- to you know have that control over the consumption thank you and in the episode um in uttarakhand there's a lot of talk about uh shifting agricultural systems and similarly in stage away from uh consumerist capitalist models so very practical answers to that so rohit double double question firstly you know your your words of wisdom to somebody who is in their community and thinking where do i even start and then also i'm really interested in your reflections on this question of capitalism and consumerism i know it's something that you think about i think what uh, a bunch of us here have been trying to do is to um uh, yeah sort of try and make sense of what is happening and kais can maybe uh, speak a little bit more about this uh, what happens growing in an urban center is that you sort of don't see the choices or the stories ever that are being spoken about here today the idea of a community management of a space or the idea of sort of different forms of ownership growing up in cities and chennai is a really big city and i have grown up here all my life these options of what it is to imagine a post capitalist or a post consumerist society that's not even evident so i think the fight is to sort of bring those show, uh, bring the sort of falsity of choices out into the open and then break that mold uh, there are many ways of doing that i imagine i imagine through play is one form through sort of thinking and introspection is one form then engaging with the non human is another form but i think that is the crucial bit where you sort of engage with what your true choices are and you engage with the choices that you have right now and then see if those are the real ones um that i would say leans into the second part of the second question that you asked but also i would say in terms of what you can do when you're faced with a crisis of this size it's again the same thing right like sort of really examine what i have been trying to do is sort of really examine what my life choices are what are the values behind it and reaffirm the values by bringing the action into play um yeah and again send all the energies that you have inwards out into the world it can take whatever form but um i don't know if that's vague but i think really sort of communicating what you're feeling with the rest of the world in any form could help sort of change the world a tiny bit thank you so much rohit and i just want to point everybody to the post that the uh extraordinary ashish kotari has put up where he said 100 examples of post growth non growth not only degrowth um based alternatives world views and practices so there's a question here that a number of you may want to comment on and it's really a question about scale 
So how, how do we move from uh, these hyper-local uh, practices, which are really trying to break the type of systems of extraction that have dominated, but how do we scale, perhaps not scale up, but scale out? Stuart, I don't know if that's something that you want to speak to. Certainly. The, 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 the sweet spot, as you call it, with scale um, is, re is really important. Uh, in in lots of endeavors, uh, in 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 building, in architecture, and certainly in agriculture, uh, finding it finding that spot that is sensitive to the local environment, and one of the reasons where we are, which is um, which is a very different bioregion to where most of the food in Australia is grown. Uh, we have rivers and mountains and smaller pockets of land. So laser leveling our country and turning it to 5,000 hectares of, of broccoli uh, doesn't really work. So scale is everything in terms of uh, local food security. Um, it's what makes it work or doesn't work. Thank you. I want to have time to listen to our Reimagined Futures podcast and the other resources that we've put up. And, and please, in the, in the show notes to the Reimagined Futures podcast, we've uh, provided some place where we'd like to hear about what other people are doing. This is about creating a global community of conversation, and it's from that we start to reimagine the future. Some great questions in there. Please forgive me for not answering them. Um, or asking them to the panel. There are so many people who I want to acknowledge. Um, just quickly, a few, Adya, Ambika, Janet, Sambhavi, Pragna, Sasha, Josh, Amelie, um, Maria, and most of all, the amazing Genevieve Wright, who's been the project manager for this and who's put this event on. Uh, thank you so much for everybody who's uh, been on the panel. Your work is a, just a daily inspiration under the most extraordinarily difficult circumstances that everybody here and your communities are working in, and yet you continue to bring a sense of possibility to it. Um, so thank you not just for tonight, but for everything that you and your communities did yesterday, today, and will do tomorrow. And uh, and thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, wish you wish you good night and good life.